It's the mid-90s in the Winter Hill neighborhood of Somerville, Massachusetts. James Whitey Bulger Jr., crime boss of the Winter Hill gang, has just gone into hiding. Bulger was tipped off by someone within the FBI that the federal government was about to indict him on racketeering charges. Bulger would remain on the lam for the next 16 years, eventually earning himself a spot on the FBI's top 10 most wanted fugitives list. Whitey, who preferred to be called Jim, had been involved in a series of crimes. From racketeering to money laundering to extortion and complicity in 19 murders. But in the end, it was Bulger's right-hand man, Kevin Weeks, who gave him up to authorities. And his FBI handler was John Connolly, who he is actually still in jail. He was a corrupt handler. And he was the one that notified Kevin, who notified Jimmy, and Jimmy went on the run. And he stayed on the run for 16 years. And he was eventually captured in 2011 in Santa Monica. During the time that Jim Bulger was on the run, he um, connected with Kevin four different times, which was not easy because Kevin was being watched constantly by police by FBI. There were helicopters that were flying over his house trying desperately to find Jimmy. And they knew that Kevin would be a link, and he was. This is Mafia. James Whitey Bulger Jr. was born September 3, 1929, to a low-income family in Everett, Massachusetts. When Whitey was young, his family moved to South Boston, where he would grow up and start getting into trouble on the streets. Allegedly, the nickname Whitey came from police, who saw his white blonde hair all too often and started referring to him based on that. Growing up on the streets, as the son of an Irish immigrant, Whitey linked up with a local street gang who dubbed themselves the Shamrocks. During this time with the group, Bulger would be arrested for assault larceny, forgery, and armed robbery. He was finally sent away to juvenile detention, where he would spend several years until his release in 1948. He then joined the United States Air Force, but was quickly back to his old ways. He would end up in military prison for multiple assaults and even went AWOL, absent without leave, which he was caught for. Despite all these instances, Bulger was honorably discharged from the military in 1952. In 1956, he was convicted of hijacking a vehicle and ended up in a few different federal prisons, including Atlanta, Leavenworth, Lewisburg, and Alcatraz. After his release, Bulger would claim that while in the Atlanta penitentiary, he was used as a human test subject in the CIA-sponsored MKUltra program. Some prisoners were given the hallucinatory drug LSD and monitored in return for shorter prison sentences. While he was in prison in Atlanta in 1956, he'd gone to prison for armed robbery, truck hijacking, but while he was there, he was part of an experiment, an um, LSD experiment that was called the MK Ultra program to research mind control for the CIA. And for 18 months, in order to get a reduced sentence, he was subjected to this LSD. Jeff Schumacher is the vice president of exhibits and programs for the Mob Museum in Las Vegas. 
He was injected with LSD as part of this secret CIA program to try to create a mind control weapon. Believe it or not, this is not science fiction. I mean, this really did happen. And uh, every week, Whitey received an injection for 15 months. And the, the effects of this weekly LSD injection were devastating. He had terrible hallucinations and uh, dreams, and, and he came out of there with a, a real problem with insomnia and obviously nightmares for the rest of his life. And some people have attributed the LSD experiments to what came later. In other words, he became this killer and, and really sociopath. Kevin absolutely assures me that that is one of the reasons that Jimmy became so violent and that he could suddenly turn on someone and that murder was like a release for him, that his mind was never the same. Jim had horrendous nightmares. He would wake up screaming and, and, and horrible visions in his mind. And that they felt that that was you know, something that had affected him for the rest of his life. I think the seeds of that were in him long before the LSD experiments. It's pretty clear he had turned to a life of crime before they ever injected him. After his release in 1965, Bulger fell in with another local gang. This time, a South Boston Irish-American gang known as the Colleen Gang. At the time, they were in the middle of a gang war. It was with this gang that Whitey committed his first homicide. It's speculated that Whitey knew he was on the losing side of the gang war, and so he switched sides, joining the Winter Hill Gang. Soon after, the leader of this gang was arrested for fixing horse races, and Whitey came into power. This is where he met fellow mobsters Kevin Weeks and Stephen Fleming. Then in 1979, some other Winter Hill Gang leaders were, were busted in this horse race fixing deal. And when that happened, Whitey basically filled another void. He became really the boss of the whole thing. And uh, at that point, the whole Irish mob in, in uh, Boston really revolved around Whitey Bulger and Steve Flemmy. These guys were partners going way back, and they really took charge of the whole thing. Phyllis Karras is a writer and retired journalism professor and the author of Kevin Weeks' biography. She has worked with Weeks extensively to get the full and accurate story of his life. My connection with Whitey Belger is mostly through Kevin Weeks, who was Whitey Belger's second command man with Stevie Fleming. I wrote Kevin's book, Brutal, which was the untold story of my life inside Whitey Belger's Irish mob. And Kevin Weeks was connected with Whitey for 25 years, was his closest confidant from the time that Kevin was 18 years old until the trial of Whitey Bulger uh, in 2012. They were um, totally connected. But what no one knew was that Bulger was an FBI informant and had been since around 1974. He knew that the FBI was giving them information that Kevin had no idea that Jim Bulger was also giving the FBI information on certain people that actually ended up being killed by the Bulger mob. But Bulger wasn't the only one with a secret. His right-hand man, Stephen Fleming, had also been informing the FBI of mob proceedings since the mid-60s. Along with Fleming, Bulger had a corrupt FBI agent on his side. The man who was secretly feeding him information was John Connolly, whom Bulger knew personally from growing up in South Boston. 
John was actually raised in the same housing project in South Boston that Jim Bulger was. The two of them were neighbors, except that John was 20 years younger. And John actually remembers once that he was a kid and he had an ice cream cone and someone kind of took his, was taking his ice cream cone away from him and suddenly Jim Bulger appeared and beat up the kid that was trying to steal John's ice cream cone. And John well, remembered from like almost, he was just infatuated with this man. He thought he was amazing. When some fellow mobsters were indicted in 1979, Bulger got off scot-free due to Connolly stepping in. He was in Alcatraz, and then of course, when he was released from prison, he did not uh, go back to jail for like 35 years, despite all these crimes. And there was always that thought that, of course, he was an FBI informant, and that's what kept him out of prison. But then they thought maybe his brother, Billy Bulger, who was the president of the Massachusetts State Senate, might be doing something. But it was mostly the FBI that was keeping him out. They needed him on the street more than they wanted him in prison. After what he got out of jail, he found himself right in the middle of his old turf war all over again. When he came out of prison, when he came out of Alcatraz, there had been a tremendous gang war between the Killeen and the Mullins, the two Irish mobs, and they were pretty much killing each other at the time. And Jim got into it at that period, and he became, he was a Killeen, and there was assassinations, and oh my God, there was such crime fighting between them. And it was just that, you know, he came out of prison, and he got a job as a janitor, and wasn't you know, he was looking for crime again. He'd been in crime all, you know, but before he'd gone to jail. And this was this gang war, and he just was a good fighter, and so he was kind of smack in the middle of it. But unfortunately, every war has its casualties, including innocent people who had nothing to do with the fight itself. Paul McGonagall, they wanted to murder him, and they sent uh, Jimmy off to kill him. And actually, McGonagall was a Killeen, but whatever he had been doing had pissed off the ranks, so they decided he had to be killed, and they gave the job to Jimmy. And uh, he went after him. The only problem was that instead of killing Polly, they killed Donald instead, who was a law-abiding citizen. They shot him. That was his brother. In the 1980s, Bulger was now working the Boston Rackets, and as an informant, he was able to do so without fear of getting caught. With this newfound freedom, he continued working mob jobs, killing those in his way, and interestingly, keeping certain drugs off the street. Allegedly, he hated heroin and made sure that local dealers weren't getting their hands on any. So they did a lot with drugs. There was a lot of constantly trying to intimidate anybody that seemed to be coming into their territory. If there was another drug person that was setting up something in South Boston, they made sure that they left. A lot of intimidation. There was certainly banks that were robbed. The drug business became much more central to it when, when Jimmy took over. He, he just controlled it all. And that was a huge source of money. And, you know, he didn't allow them to sell drugs to children. There were certain drugs, cocaine, and certain uh, angel dust he did not allow. So he changed it in that respect. But it wasn't just about making money. Bulger wanted to help out his people, the locals in the area. Kevin says this is true, that, you know, he, he took good care of people in South Boston, that there were people that needed help, that there was a, a family whose daughter was being bothered by some drug people or whatever, and they went in, they beat the crap out of those the, the guys that were bothering her. There was a couple of people that needed money, older people. He was very generous, would drop off groceries, would drop off checks. A lot of people, you know, felt he was Robin Hood. 
Not only was he helping those in need, but when the news broke that Bulger was arrested later on, people were heartbroken. They all felt that when he was arrested, that that was terrible. You know, they, they loved him. He did good things. He gave money to the schools. Oh, my God, he was such an anti-busing person. Practically blew up uh, buildings and schools when Judge Garrity did the enforced uh, integration in the schools. Bulger was strongly against busing. In the 70s, people in the Boston public school system called for desegregation of schools, as many were still majority white or black. The compulsory busing plan made it so that children of different family incomes were bused to schools in other districts. This plan was met with opposition from both parties involved. Black people were unsafe in these majority white schools as they were often attacked and harassed, and white people just picked up and moved, also known as white flight to the suburbs. It failed miserably and it caused enormous enormous problems. Kids didn't, wouldn't go to school. There was a whole class of, I believe, I must have been the class of 1972 that never graduated from South Boston High because there was so much violence. They had to bring in the state police because there were so many fights that were breaking out and, and the black kids would come on these buses. Rocks would be thrown at them. Jim Bulger was against it and Stevie Flemmy and Kevin went out of their way to do everything they could to disrupt it too. At the time, Kevin was in high school, and he was one of the ones that was throwing the rocks and, and doing all those things. In his fight to end busing, someone set fire to an elementary school in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Some say it was Bulger. Others say it was Flemmy and Weeks. This was done to send a message to the U.S. District Court judge who was in support of this busing desegregation plan. Later... Bulger and another associate would toss a Molotov cocktail bomb into the birthplace of President John F. Kennedy to send a message to his brother Ted Kennedy, who also supported the busing desegregation plan. Stevie Flemmy and Kevin set fire to an elementary school in Wellesley, and Judge Garrity, the one who ordered the busing, in his town, set fire to the school. They were never convicted of it, but everyone knows they did it. They placed a bomb near John Kennedy's birthplace, but it was discovered in time they wanted to blow up that house. I mean, they were so against anybody that was for busing. Bulger gave up a lot of information on the Providence, Rhode Island-based Patriarca crime family during his time in connection with the FBI. As a nearby gang, the Patriarcas were sort of a local rival to the Winterhill gang. But thanks to Bulger's secret FBI involvement, the Winterhill gang usually got let off the hook more often than their rivals. However, just because Bulger had friends in high places, that didn't mean local law enforcement were so easily swayed. They saw right through the facade and knew Bulger was up to something. In 1994, state and local police worked together to gather as much as they could about Bulger and his dealings. They were sure to not let the FBI in on their plan, as they rightly had a feeling they were not to be trusted. However, word got out and John Connolly heard about the mounting evidence against Whitey. 
In one last act of goodwill towards him, Connolly warned Kevin Weeks, who warned Bulger, of what was to come. Whitey was able to escape just in time, as his colleagues were all arrested. But it didn't stop there. The government was now dead set on finding Bulger and putting him behind bars. Bulger fled with his then-girlfriend, Teresa Stanley. Phyllis Karras is a writer and retired journalism professor and the author of Kevin Weeks' biography. He took off. At that time, it was just a RICO indictment, and they didn't think that it was going to stand, that they thought it would fall through. So when Teresa and Jim Belger took off, they thought they'd be back maybe three months or so, and then the whole indictment thing would collapse, as most of the other type of indictments against him had in the past. However, this one did not. This one continued and grew stronger. But Stanley had a life and family of her own and wasn't cut out for life on the run. Jim brought Teresa back to Boston on February 14th. It was actually Valentine's Day. And Kevin then gave him the woman that would stay on the run with Jim Belger for so many years. And that was Kathy Craig. Because even though he was most, Jim was mostly living with Teresa, he also had another very serious relationship, and that was with Kathy Craig. Kevin Weeks remembers it as a sort of swap. The scene that Kevin creates the night that they made the exchange, that Teresa Stanley got dropped off at her house in South Boston, and then he went to the park, to a nearby park, where Kathy Craig was waiting, a little shoulder bag over her shoulder, and um, very not, hadn't brought that many things with her, and got in the car with Kevin, who then drove her to meet Jim. She was a very loyal woman to him, and she truly loved him, and she never believed any of the stories about Jim Belger being a, a murderer. She knew he did some bad things. Uh, she knew he was into the mob, but she never believed, she still doesn't to this day, believe that he was really as bad as, as he honestly was. Bulger was always extremely careful on the run, but would sometimes act out in bold ways. Whenever Kevin would meet the two of them, like in New York, one particular time, he evaded the police. He took so many different cars, so he eventually got to the train station and then met Jim in New York, Grand Central. Kevin met Jim and Kathy, and they just took off for the afternoon. It was, it was incredible. They were looking for a, a Japanese restaurant that Jim wanted Kevin to see. And he said they were walking down the streets of Manhattan looking like, you know, a typical threesome, nothing about them that extraordinary. And at that time, of course, Jim is a, is a wanted man on the run. And when he couldn't find the restaurant, he actually stopped and asked a policeman where it was. And the policeman walked them to the restaurant. And Jim always said, you know, you just act normal and nobody will notice you. And he did. And um, that was a you know, perfectly fine visit. But Bulger's life on the run couldn't last forever. In the next episode, what followed the bust was a 16-year pursuit in which Bulger was on the run, fleeing across the U.S., crossing the border to Canada, and even being reported seen in London, England. He would eventually earn a spot on the FBI 10 Most Wanted Fugitives list. But his long-kept secret would eventually come out he was an FBI informant, and soon, the world would know. He said to Kevin, when they come for you, give me up. And it was kind of a strange statement, and Kevin didn't pay that much attention, but he had this strange feeling something was really off. And sure enough, about three months later, it was announced 
that Jim Bulger was a FBI informant. This has been Mafia, an Audio Boom original series, hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Audio Boom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burroughs, Karen Bevan, and Rachel Jacobs. Executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. Special thanks to Phyllis Karras and Jeff Schumacher for providing expert insight for this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.